Welcome to Data and Dev. We're your hosts, Melissa and John. Join us as we cover the broad landscape of technology through interviews and analogy. Drinking from a fire hose, the interviews this season have felt for me like I'm drinking from a fire hose. So much knowledge has been shared from our guests. And part two of our conversation with Aaron and Raphael from Cockroach Labs is no different. You'll notice towards the end of our conversation that Aaron departs a bit early. We tried to cram as much as we could into the time we had, and Aaron was working against a hard cutoff. So he had to drop early, and we continued the conversation for a bit longer with Raphael. This conversation was so active that we had a hard time finding a good place to split the conversation. Uh, So we jumped right in to this episode from where we left off last time. So here we go, continuing the conversation with Aaron and Raphael from Cockroach Labs. So that comes, what you just said brings to mind, I've learned the answer to pretty much any question in tech is it depends. That, that's like the standard start to any, any question. Um, and I would imagine just like any other area of tech, security is all about the trade-offs. Given infinite time, given infinite resources, we could do anything, but that's not the reality. So what are some of the main trade-offs on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis that you are working with? Always understand the business value of what you're doing. At the end of the day, security is a business decision. You may believe it's something else. You may believe it's part of a holy crusade. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're protecting either business systems, business data, or you know customers themselves. And you need to make sure that any effort and energy that you spend to do that is aligned with the risk that you're hoping to offset. We could implement you know, 16 different ways of authenticating to our system, but that may bring the cost of interacting with our system up such that customers don't want to do that. I don't have the numbers today, but I know in retail, they have a number they call shrinkage, which is just general loss. That's a, it's a low single digit percentage, but it's an accepted single digit percentage because they know that to get it below that would cost more than the loss of those assets. That makes sense. And that also makes me think, so my, uh, my school where I'm, I'm getting a program just recently went to two, to a two factor office authentication for our Gmail. So I can't just log into my Gmail anymore. I have to get out my phone, pull out an app, find the code, enter it in. And it's a minor annoyance, but it's an annoyance. And that in an effort to better secure my email and ultimately the school, uh, they're putting a burden on, on the user. So how do you weigh, maybe even calculate that, that trade-off? It's going to be burdening to our customers, but it is necessary because it's the right decision. So some of these things are measurable. Um, it may take time and energy to do that. And to weigh the cost of, say, loss of confidentiality of a user's email versus the perceived annoyance um, of enacting those controls. In general, if your usage of MFA is impacting your everyday usage, then the system may not have been implemented in a way that is optimal. I'll, I'll jump from MFA for a moment to something related. Uh, one of the first questions I got when I joined Cockroach Labs was, you know, we've launched Cockroach Cloud. We really want customers to use it. But one of the primary stumbling blocks is we require them to set up an IP allow list. You know, if you've ever worked with Amazon or GCP, they often 
wants you to set that up. You're gonna put resources on the internet. We recommend that you don't allow the entire internet to talk to it. And that's been pretty much accepted as status quo. But the first question I got from product was, what's it gonna take for us to remove that allow list requirement? And I said, well, why do we wanna do that? You have a database. A database intrinsically holds like sensitive information. You, it's a huge attack surface. Why do you wanna put that on the internet? And they said, well, our customers are struggling to connect to it. I said, really, they can't do this? Can we just have that? And I found out I didn't understand the problem space that the customers were coming from. They were trying to use systems like AWS Lambda. And Lambda comes from different IPs all the time. So they can't just say, oh, this IP is where my function is going to come from. And it forced us to think about that problem from a usability standpoint and say, okay, well, we do need to enable customers to interact with our system. What can we do to ensure that we're protecting against the right threat? And so the right threat wasn't internet at large will connect to your system. The, the threat was some concerted set of attackers are going to try to either brute force access or they're going to probe the system. They're, they're going to do other things. And if you take a step back and understand that threat, then you can sometimes right size your solution. It's hard and it's expensive to come up with those solutions. And sometimes the right answer is pass the pain to your, your user base because you don't have the resources to solve it a different way for now. But in an optimal world and, and you know, speaking sort of aspirationally, your security controls should align with your user's use and expectation because there are many technical controls that will enable that that don't require pain for the users. I aspire for security in general to be invisible to the users or as light as possible and easily adapted into their workflows. It shouldn't be a yes and because humans are innovative creatures and they will find ways to optimize the things they don't like and those optimizations will often be circumvention of your security controls. That, that's really enlightening to hear uh, that side of those decisions. And in, in your answer, it, it's clear you're not in this isolated box hacking away on a machine, just trying to find vulnerabilities and fix them. You actually have to have the ear of the, listen to the customer and understand the customer side of things. Is there any realm for the complete stereotypical introvert where they are just hacking away? Or is there always a need to uh, you know, take customer feedback and make sure you're implementing real world scenarios in your solutions? There is room for both. The, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing over the years is being that liaison who can speak the different languages and the different domains. Um, however, I've had a lot of fun building teams that had individuals as you described that were you know, deep in their, their knowledge. You know, give me a nice you know, well-defined problem and I will crunch this. Uh, I remember there was a fairly senior individual on one of my teams that had a background in microelectronics and I needed an optimization for a system. And I said, here's, here's what your inputs are gonna look like. This is what I need. And I need it to run in approximately this amount of time. And he looks back and he says, you do know my background's in microelectronics. I'm like, yes. And, and like, it's a fixed memory, fixed throughput, fixed time problem. He's like, awesome. I'll have you something in two weeks. There's absolutely room. Um, it's just finding where you're going to be comfortable and, and then finding a team that will allow you to do your best work. That's neat to, to see that there's different avenues for different personalities and, and strengths. Um, Raphael, as so database, historically, there's this giant room. It's all physical. You have these servers and it's you're, you're probably in the same building or the next building over it. It's all wired. As cloud computing has exploded and cloud database usage has exploded. That's what Cockroach is. Um, how has security about databases changed? What are, what are the new risks you're looking at and trying to mitigate? 
Um, thank you for uh, for asking. See, um, there there are multiple angles I think we can take to look at this. So, from from a end user perspective, understanding that the end user here is not the user of the apps using the database, but the programmers that is creating an app that uses the database. There is something interesting happening with the cloud, and that is that the traffic is going over the internet, and and that's new. In the past, apps were physically located next to their database, and there was a very reasonable assumption that the network was secure because it was physically isolated for everything else, and good practices would suggest to have a firewall that would isolate the application and database network from everything else. Now, with the cloud solution where the application and the database lie in different machines, there will be traffic in between that is possibly routed through the internet. And that means that there are actors in the middle that might be interested to look into those transactions and perhaps influence them. That's new. That is something that the application developers, unfortunately, have to know about because we, well, there are two reasons why they want to care about this. One is because they care as providers of a service, that's their end users are, are not going to experience problems. And so they, they want to safeguard their database activity uh, against at least uh, errors and perhaps malicious usage. And also, also probably they have confidentiality expectations from their end users. They want also to keep the data secrets. And so they, they, they care about this. And then the other thing they care about is uh, predictability. If, even if they didn't care about confidentiality, security, and other things, uh, it's very uh, onerous in the design of a system to have a database that, that disappears from under your application or maybe where some random activity by accident or not uh, is deleting data or tables or other things you rely to continue to exist. And so that expectation of stability and, and uh, reliability uh, is actually a security concern because, of course, some of those reliability issues, when they occur, can translate into security incidents. That's a challenge. That's a new dimension that is going to be part of application design for the end users, for the developer end users, and that they didn't have before. So it has actually a layer of complexity in the creation of client apps. And that complexity is, in fact, a cost to using a cloud database that you wouldn't have if you were to use a local database. So hopefully that cost is going to be offset by other benefits of using cloud systems, including possibly higher reliability, uh, the ability to use uh, services as a provider for uh, backups and other things. Um, but it's still new, and that needs to be explained, that needs to be taught, that needs to be considered. And for us as a company, Kokosh Labs, we do have now an interest to lower that cost for the end users by creating uh, client-side frameworks or SDKs or other tools that will simplify and smoothen the experience of creating secure apps without having to understand all those things. So th that means more complexity, more cost, but also perhaps uh, an incentive for the database provider to create technologies that will ease that cost for the end users so that the technology become more uh, attractive. So that's like the, uh, the, the business side, like the user side of the story. Now, the other side of the story that interests me a lot is the impact on the people who build the database service, like the members of the Cocosh Labs team in my case. Because now we have a new situation as database programmers, and that is that uh, we need to build all the security controls where a regular old-school database would probably not have cared about that. And that is new work. That is a new dimension of the software engineering practices. Also, cloud services fail 
in many different ways due to reliability. And again, I said, these reliability concerns are actually security concerns. And every time we talk about reliability, we need to take a security lens to look at it and see what are all the ways where security problem can occur as a result of a fault or a malfunction. And these are new exercises for the technologists inside our organization. And uh, next to this, we have the evaluation of the work. Like, is our product a good product? Uh, just looking at whether the queries are satisfied and whether they are performing quickly is not any more sufficient to decide whether our service is adequate. We actually do need to run now security analysis. Is the service we're providing over the internet a secure service? And for a database programmer, that is very outside of the regular skill sets. That is something we need to teach. That's not something we need new quality controls for. So the tech leads and the managers typically don't think about this when they get hired. So we need to also train the organization to, to do those, those exercises. And they, they come really at, as an additional expense that uh, old school database would not have to consider otherwise. I would like to jump in and add something to that, if I may. There is an additional angle, which is also support. Classic database support was you gain access to a customer's environment under their supervision and you help them troubleshoot things. And then they close out the access and you go home. But as we move to you know, a cloud hosted database product, our support engineers need the minimum friction to be able to get in and look at customer environments and troubleshoot things. So the default is, yeah, give me access to everything. That way, if I need it, I can have it. But there's no reasonable customer that's gonna say, yeah, your support engineers can have access to my database and everyone else's all the time. So it's an additional thing that was not a prior engineering constraint that we must evaluate for the system as we build it. That makes sense. I've got one question for you and then just kind of an open-ended. For, for somebody who's like, yeah, I wanna pursue the security route. I've either gone through a program or I'm hacking my way through and I've got some reasonable skill set. Where is there an entryway? It feels like very ignorant feel. You have to already be pretty established in your career to land something security wise. So where can the newbie go to get their foot in the door on a security trajectory? So if you're not already working in a security domain, and if you're not already working, I recommend any technical type work. It could be website development. It could be you know, scripting um, to just continue to build understanding of those systems. Outside of that, looking for anything that's even security adjacent, there's a tremendous amount of self-study available tools and playgrounds to work with that didn't exist when I was learning this stuff. You know, go look for things like exploit exercises. Um, they'll give you intentionally weak VMs. Maybe you can't solve them right off because you don't know the Linux permissions model or how to abuse it. Go find a walkthrough. There is no shame in finding a walkthrough and then reading the walkthrough and understanding why you could exploit a VM in this way. And it will further your understanding. Nice, I've got my to-do list for this weekend. Um, any, any last thoughts you wanna share before you take off for the day? Uh, thank you for this. It's been interested to be put on the spot for these things because it also reminded me that as I sit in my security world and, and my security perspective, some things that I reach to as, well, this because, okay, you can become too biased in your own domain, in your own fiefdom. And sometimes it's good to have a reminder of someone that doesn't think about security as a, as a first principle. How would you explain that? Um, this has been a really good refresher in that. Regardless of what you choose to do, step out of your comfort zone as often as you can afford to. That's great. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. 
Great. So going back what you were just sharing, the comment you made that security, not security, software engineers are not coming with the security background because it's kind of a new field. Do you see that as an area that should be added to traditional educational programs or should that be more on the on the job learning side? What are your thoughts to bridging those gaps? I like the framing of this question. I have thought about it and the answer is I wouldn't add security as a field in education programs or traditional teaching activities. The word security is so broad that just talking about it this way would not bring you actionable coursework or uh, specific talking points during a lecture and so on. The um, focus, I think, would need to be talked about more during either bootcamp activities or self-study activities or education programs is this analysis standpoint I was talking about earlier. And so the ways this can come in self-study or coursework and so on is asking questions of the shape, what if? That is really like some, the essence of the situation here. When, when we give coursework or when we find exercises, usually there is like, okay, create a program that does something. And so there is some, some, some spelling out of what is the expected output. And then there is perhaps sometimes a discussion, okay, you have an alternative choice to make between multiple solutions. What are you going to choose? What are your arguments? All this should continue to exist. They are valuable. One thing that we don't have much today and that would prime people to a security mindset is the question, what if? And that is a question, okay, outside of the bounds of the programming exercise, after you have constructed your program, what if you were subjecting your program to that kind of input? Or if your program is reading from a file, what if the file is corrupted? How would your program react? Prime people to explain, usually in prose, what their understanding is of what they are doing to someone who is not there yet. Someone at their level, so that they can assume the language is the same, like the prose, the English language, if that's their language, is the same. Uh, but the, the other person doesn't know the technology yet and makes that person exercise in the phrasing of those explanations, those what-if explanations. There is a um, uh, adjacent uh, activity that is uh, connected to this, which I, I think is also possible to integrate in programming exercises. And that is to uh, start doing software engineering for the error conditions, for all the things that are not on what you were calling the happy path earlier. Many of the programming techniques that are currently taught for beginners or perhaps in uh, coursework or exercises online or challenges, programming challenges, always try to promote the idea that errors are exceptional and, and, and suggest the programmer to take a shortcut. If an exceptional error happens, then just terminate the program or print an error message and exit with certain exit codes. And the common understanding of an exceptional situation is the entire program will stop, and that is the end of the story. We can change this by evolving the programming activities to say, well, if an exceptional condition happens, maybe the system needs to continue running, and then we need to have a guarantee that we can then exercise in testing, that the state of the system is maintained to a consistent situation so that further requests are not going to encounter unforeseen situations. That is a new kind of phrasing for the programming specifications. Like, don't stop the program when something happens, but instead handle it and make something meaningful happen. And then if a program is to terminate, then there is something that's possible to do as well, and that is to ask the programmers to create unit tests that exercise all the possible error paths in their program. Like, can we 
take a program that doesn't have error handling today, add a unit test that demonstrates that the lack of error handling is going to create undesired behavior, and then modifies the program to add the error handling where it was missing. That is a very val valid, legitimate, regular uh, programming activity for someone who is in that constructing problem-solving mindset. And uh, by having more of those programming activities, uh, we are going to prime people to think about those cases in their regular day-to-day -day programming. And that additional thinking is going to be sufficient to put people on a better, better mindset to understand security problems. I think that's a great point about the ubiquity for the need for thinking about security. And I think one thing we, I'm not sure we, we touched on, but um, at Cockroach, you're focused on databases, but I think that technology is a fundamental, without repeating my terms, but it's a fundamental technology for, for just how the internet works, right? Because just uh, a lot of what we do online is is some sort of transaction, whether it's you know, exchanging ideas or exchanging resources or, or whatnot. So databases are, are needed for that. So is there to kind of give a sense of, of how many different applications there are for databases in all the different areas? Is there, you know, are there some that, you know, uh, would you be able to enumerate a few to sort of illustrate that, that broadness? I think I can answer your question in two ways. I don't know which one you would prefer, but let me just try them out nonetheless. Uh, one is to enumerate technologies or approaches to technology, and one is to enumerate um, mental models to think to understand how to think about data and data storage. Uh, let me let me start with the technologies. I think today in the database fields, we we can do a, a reasonably good job of explaining what's going on, and that is um, a, a separation between technologies that are there to support uh, transactions and sources of truth for uh, businesses or record systems where people matter about which data is stored about them or for them in the system. And then separately, data systems that exist as a support for other systems. And you can think here about caching technology, where there is a copy held locally for something that's complex to compute, so that next request will be accelerated. Or maybe um, a database that contains um, a copy of the records in a, in a, in a, in a stored, or like all the previous uh, uh, acquisitions or like shipments or whatever for the purpose of doing a data analysis. So those uh, secondary stores, I call them, uh, do, do not have the same constraints on their design because it's much less a big deal if some data is lost. It is a big deal if the data is compromised, like they are in illegitimate accesses to it usually, but at, at, at least the, uh, the, the loss of data or inadvertent uh, modification is, is less of a risk for the business. So in, in, that, uh, in that way of thinking about things, uh, you, you can say, well, there are SQL database or relational management system with portfolio transactions, they will be in the first category. And then uh, some people will even build their records of truth using uh, NoSQL databases, like with document formats or document schemas that are more loose. As long as those systems support resilience and consistency and data corruption protections, they can usually be used for the purpose of uh, data retention for as a, as a source of truth. In the second category, we have a much wider diversity of systems. So some of them can be called databases. I uh, think about, um, sorry, it's complicated. Uh, if I start giving names here, people are going to be saying um, I'm biased. Uh, those systems can also be used in the first category and I, I'm going to get a bad reputation. Sure. <laughs> um, 
but if you if you if you think about uh, uh, many databases that can be configured in a weaker consistency model for the purpose of additional performance, usually those weaker consistency models have been designed for those secondary system use cases. I, I'm not going to give any names. People are going to have a, a, an opinion about things, and I don't want to land into troubles. Um, sure. But let's put this way. CockroachDB has been optimized for the first category, much less for the second one. Uh, so that's like the technological standpoint, uh, record uh, so records of truth versus uh, support systems. And then there is another uh, separate uh, perspective to understand uh, data technology nowadays. And that is the, um, the ways that people relate to uh, the location of the data. You have systems where the physical location where the data is stored matters. So in a, in a system of truth, the location can matter if you, if you have a regulatory environment that requires uh, data to be within the boundaries of national borders, like think about medical records, needs to typically stay in their country. Uh, for a support system, usually the physical location of the data matters because of the performance that's going to be associated with it. Uh, if you have a caching system, you want to have multiple copies in different geographical areas to ensure that the access will be with a low latency wherever you are. So uh, those systems where that are uh, physical, where the physical location is, is sensitive, uh, they have a universe of design considerations attached to them. And that is a universe where people using and building those databases will be forced to maintain in their head at least a mapping between their logical data domains that they have in the apps and the physical location in regions and servers, depending on the abstraction that you use. In that universe, there will be discussions about what is called sharding, uh, which parts of the database, which shards of the database go to which server or which region. And that is a, a layer of complexities that comes from this interest in keeping a close understanding of, of where the data is in the world. Separately from that, angle at that higher level, you have the angle where you can abstract the location of the data entirely, whereas the application does not need to know. And that means that the database can then take initiative to multiply the data or reduce the amount of copies or maybe migrate the data automatically from one place to another without informing the user or the client application. Uh, those are, they used to be called cloud technologies in the past. But they're not anymore because nowadays more and more people want the cloud technologies to also do the uh, physical locality uh, uh, knowledge. Uh, so just doing just in cloud is not sufficient to understand that anymore. So the new word that's attached to that is serverless, where uh, the word serverless uh, is basically to say you don't know where the server is or you don't even know that there is a server. It doesn't matter if there is one or many or zero, in fact. Uh, you access your data with an internet name that is resolvable wherever you are on Earth, and then the system will give you your data wherever it is, or maybe got different copies to it. And that prevents the, so that allows the designers of client applications to ignore the actual implementation of the database and how the data is located in the world. Uh, so to recap, again, uh, I will say in the first way of thinking about databases, you have record, record systems, truth, sources of truth systems versus support systems. And these have different design constraints. And then at the other level, you have uh, systems that expose the physical location of the data because it matters. And you have systems that uh, remove this understanding because it doesn't matter. And that creates a two by two table. And those four cells, if you were to present it as a table, would have different technologies, different brands, and different configurations for certain databases to satisfy all those needs.
It was perfect. Yeah. The broad, that was a, a great way to kind of cover that broad topic. Thank you. Yeah. I learned a ton in that last little bit there. Really interesting. Is there anything that you wanted to elaborate on or anything we didn't cover that you, you really wanted to share? Uh, I, I, I will come back to, uh, to something Aaron said, because uh, I think it's super important and it's valid. And that is people can get into security without having studied or research security first. Like you can get into security from an existing training, an existing job without having to, to go through a retraining program. That, that is a valid approach. And in fact, some things that maybe uh, your audience will want to know, that is that there is currently a huge demand for security specialists. That is an area where the hiring is exploding right now. There are uh, societal and, and circumstantial reasons why that is the case. I, I don't know that's the purpose for today, but nevertheless, the job market is very active. And that means that there are a lot of opportunities. Now, Unfortunately, people who hire for security, they, they are still doing hiring using matching keywords. And so it's very difficult to tailor a resume to see particular keywords that I use. Uh, usually the projects that someone has done don't really match, but doesn't mean that it's uh, unattainable. What is the case is that people can join an organization that is hiring for security in a different job and then gravitate towards the security domain and then be hired internally for security, like uh, move uh, sideways in the organization into a security role. And that is pretty common, in fact. And then the organization you want to have for your own training or your education or your career path is uh, find find joint opportunities that are technical in nature, that allow you to uh, spend time with, uh, with hardware, with software, to at, at, at a reasonable high level of depth. And if you don't have that to start with, uh, find a group that does this and find a way to be taught by the existing experts. And then as you are doing that education in the context of a job that is not security related, talk to the security minded people in the organization, tell them that you have interest in there, ask them the questions that's, 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 that are going to be interesting to you, but also listen to the questions they have uh, that they would like to be answered by a security expert, and then do the research as needed for that work. Even though you're not a security expert yet, you can listen to these questions, take that as a uh, suggestion to do research, then do the research. And perhaps if the question has not been answered yet, propose your answer or the outcome of your research to the people who are interested. And that will create an aura of security expertise around you, even though that's not your primary role. And as you get more and more acknowledged in that growing expertise or curiosity, people are going to look more and more at you as a uh, perhaps a consultant or advisory role for security adjacent questions and anytime those conversations happen you can record them for your own use later in the job interview when someone asks you okay what is your security expertise well you can say well i have been used as an advisor in my organization while i was a software engineer because i was interested in those things and that is the right way to advertise for security expertise when you transition into security role, because in that case, it's okay and it's perfectly understood that your primary position was not security related, um, but you can have gained that expertise that way. That's really excellent uh, advice. Thank you so much for that. I think that'll be very helpful for anybody interested. Yeah, as you said, it speaks to Aaron's point that, you know, your first or several uh, roles may not have security in the title, but that uh, that doesn't mean that you're not on the security career track. 
Any last thoughts that you want to share? Like, uh, like Aaron, I would like to thank you for organizing this. Um, we we need more of this kind of content generally uh, on the internet in uh, in, in communities. Uh, this is a topic that is currently timely. And as I explained earlier, I wish that security concerns or curiosities were more broadly uh, taught in computer engineering, software engineering environments. And so your project here is going to help with that. And for that, I'm grateful. Well, thank you. We're we're so glad that, again, you gave us the time. Uh, we really appreciate your expertise and, and your very generous nature in sharing that expertise. Yeah, this is great. I really appreciate your willingness, but also I, I appreciate your your elaboration and your, I think your, your educational back or, you know, your education background, teaching others, uh, it really comes through. So I really appreciate your your answers. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Raphael. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye. That was Raphael Post and Aaron Blum from Cockroach Labs. We covered a lot of ground over this two-part interview, and my hope is that it has whet your appetite to learn more. Check out the show notes to learn more about our guests and for resources on some of the topics we've covered. You'll find some links to capture the flag opportunities as well as links to security focused books that are very beginner friendly. A few of my favorites specifically. Join us next time as John and I recap this season and talk about our plans for season two. And if you've benefited from this episode or any of our episodes this season, consider leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It just helps other people find us. And if you have somebody in mind that you think would really enjoy this particular interview or any of the other uh, episodes we've done, send them a link, send them a text, shoot them an email, say, hey, check out this podcast. Until next time. Thank you.